Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 30. And I'd like for us to pray briefly once more and just ask for God's help before we read it. Father, we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit working and your miraculous word in our lives, this will just be informational. And that's not what we want. We want to hear from you and know you better, be transformed by you, be closer to you. So we just ask that you would bring those things about and we would give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 30. I joked when I was texting with Rhonda in preparation for this service, what I'm preaching on, so she could select songs, that this is the second in my sermon series entitled Awkward. This may be the only sermon you've ever heard from this passage of Scripture. I'm not sure. It's definitely the only time I've ever preached from it. It's not one of those passages you tend to return to over and over and over again. But all of God's Word is breathed out by Him. It's all profitable. That's why we move through books like this. And here we are, Genesis chapter 19, verse 30. The Bible has a lot of good examples that you can emulate and follow, but that's not what we're going to see in this passage. In this passage, we're going to see three scared people, one of which, in her fear, hatches a really devious and disturbing plan, a plan that ended up messing up life for a lot of people for a very long time. So if you'll remember where we left off last week, we had read about Lot and his family in the city of Sodom and how God destroyed Sodom, but he rescued Lot and his family. Well, almost, his wife didn't make it because she looked back with regard upon Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot and his daughters escaped, and they settled in a little city called Zoar, and that's where we left Lot and his daughters. We're going to pick up the story with them now in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. So Lot had the angel's assurance that he would be safe in Zoar, that they would not destroy Zoar. But here we don't know how much time had passed. Lot was afraid, and he left Zoar. We don't know why he was afraid. You know, we know Lot's character a little bit, and he doesn't always operate by God's wisdom, and he doesn't operate often out of a place of secured and settled faith, so there's really no telling what made him so scared that he left. It could be that the men of Zoar were behaving similarly to the men of Sodom, and he feared that the outcry would rise up to God, and God would change his mind and destroy the city anyway. Or it could be that he just had some form of post-traumatic stress disorder from what he experienced in Sodom. If you can put yourself in his shoes, that would have been quite stressful. And so maybe just the clamor of living in a city was too much for him, and it wore on his nerves, and he couldn't take it. We, we don't know. The Bible doesn't describe it. But what we do know is that he was afraid. And what we can see is that his fear made him retreat from the city to a cave in the hills. Now, I have a similar instinct sometimes, and maybe you do too. If you ever have gone to Costco on a Saturday, you've likely, on your way, escaping the city of Matthews, thought, I'm going to go live in a cave in the hills, and I don't, I don't need anything anymore, I don't want to be around people anymore. 
whatever it was, Lot acted on it. He actually did it. He took his daughters, moved them out of the city into a cave in the hills. And it turns out as we read on that Lot wasn't the only one in the family who was struggling with fear. Let's read verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now we'll stop there for just a moment. Now what she's talking about is she can't see any way that she and her younger sister will be able to get married and have children, which was central to the purpose and security for a woman back in this society. And there she is in a cave with their old aging dad, and she can't see any way that that's going to happen under the current circumstances. Now, this was not a crazy fear. This was not an insane concern. This was pretty reasonable. They had seen, they had fiancés. They were engaged to have been married, but their fiancés were killed in Sodom because they thought Lot was joking when he told them to get out. So their lives were moving toward being married and, and having husbands and then, Lord willing, bearing children prior to the destruction of Sodom, but all that got erased. Their father is old. They indeed are living in a cave in the hills. And if their father were to die, they would be alone in a cave, just two sisters up there. That's not a very pleasant prospect. So you can kind of understand why she might have felt a little uneasy here. Their father had not proved to be a wise protector. And so even though he is not dead yet, he hasn't really served them all that well. If you'll recall, he offered to give them to the mob outside of his house just a few passages earlier. Plus, they knew how evil men could be, so it's not as though they felt like as soon as their dad died, they could just go on back to Zoar. They had seen extreme evil among men, and so it's unlikely that they would have felt safe to just go as two women back to any city looking for help. So it was a desperate situation, and in a way, they were right. There in that cave with their dad, it was very unlikely that they would find a husband. It was unlikely that they'd be able to have children. It was unlikely that they would be attached to any other man that could provide for them financial security or any other kind of security. But in, an, in another way, the way she saw things was distorted. What she says there is, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. There is not a man on earth. Now, is that actually true? Was this actually a last man on earth situation and Lot was actually the last man on earth? No, that's not actually true. You can understand why they would feel like that, but that's not actually the case. There were men on the earth. There were men back in Zoar. There were men with their uncle Abraham. There were men, if they thought back to their homeland before they left with Abraham back earlier in Genesis, but they couldn't see any of that. Because that's what fear does. Fear distorts our vision, and it exaggerates our fears, and it makes them seem larger than they actually are, and it can blind us to possibilities that would give us hope. I don't know if this is still on there, but it used to be that on rearview mirrors on your car, it would say objects in mirror may be closer than they appear. Do they still say that? Is that still? Caleb says yes. I've not paid attention, but I remember noticing it when I was younger. Objects seen through the lens of fear always appear bigger than they actually are. 
And that's what was happening here. And you know that feeling. Um, I know that feeling. Fear is a terrible feeling. And when it really gets a grip on you emotionally, it, it can mess up your perception so bad that you can't tell anymore how dangerous a thing actually is because you're just so emotionally churned up about it. When you're seeing things through a lens of fear, the prospect of losing your job doesn't just look like the loss of a job. It looks like on the side of the road with a cardboard sign. When you're seeing through the lens of fear, your concerns over your children's safety can make every stranger look like a predator. When you're seeing through the lens of fear, any kind of sickness plus Google equals cancer. The sniffles, I Googled it, I'm dying. Because fear distorts our vision so bad, it is a really bad counselor. Fear is a really bad advisor. Fear does not give you good advice and lead you in a good direction. Because it messes up our vision so much, it can lead to really bad decisions. Fear-based decisions are almost always really bad decisions. Fear-based plans are almost always really bad plans because we're not seeing things correctly. And so here the firstborn has a legitimate concern but has taken root into now an outright fear that is causing a distorted view of things. She feels like there's not even a man on earth anymore other than our old dad in this cave. And it leads her to make a really bad plan in verse 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father. Now, this is as shocking as anything that we read last week. This is as disturbing as anything that we read last week. But is this the plan of a woman who is trusting in the Lord? No, this is the plan of a desperate, panicked woman who is not thinking right, who's not seeing things right. You can think of it like filters. You know, now it's easy to apply a filter to an image in your phone. You can make it black and white or sepia tone, or you can change your face out to that of a cat. Did anybody see the video of that attorney who accidentally, his daughter had used his Zoom and put a filter on to where he looked like a cat, and he couldn't figure out how to turn it off. It's hilarious. If you've not seen it, you should look it up. It's just like that. Fear is like a filter that changes the appearance of everything. Faith is like a filter that clarifies everything in the truth and light of God. She was not seeing things well because she was looking through this fear filter instead of looking through a faith filter. And so she, she wasn't thinking right. And here she makes this really weird, evil, distorted plan. Through the fear filter, she saw there's not a man on earth. Come, let us get our father drunk and try to have children by him because it's the only way it's going to happen. Through a faith filter, she might have remembered, this seems really bad, but there is a God. We know there is a God. We know he's powerful. We know he loves us. We know he's done miraculous things before when it comes to people having children. Remember, our Aunt Sarah was way beyond childbearing age, and he empowered her to have a child. Instead of plotting, they would have been praying. Instead of seeking their own solutions, they would have been seeking the Lord. They might have asked their dad to move. They might have come up with more reasonable strategies. Could we move over with our Uncle Abraham? He has people. 
there? Do we have to live in this cave or in these sinful cities you keep driving us to? Or they could have said, could we move back to our homeland? Or if you don't want to go, could you just take us back? Like there, there were other routes possibly, or seemingly looking back. But they don't mention God. They aren't thinking about God. They're just thinking about what they're seeing through this fearful vision. They're coming to fearful conclusions, and they're making fearful plans. And we need to learn from their example and beware of making fear-based plans. When fear begins to get a grip on you, which it will in this fallen world, it's just a part of life here, don't let that fear drive your decision-making and your planning because it'll almost always go bad. You need to change the filter from the fear filter to the faith filter and pray and search scripture and seek good counsel from godly people and remember that God exists and that he is good and he is powerful and that he loves us. Otherwise, we may fall into the same trap. Our fear of our children making a mess of their lives can drive us to be, become overly involved in where we just take over their lives. Our fear of poverty can make us make bad career decisions and take jobs that end up consuming our entire lives instead of maybe waiting and seeking some good advice first. Our fear of embarrassment can make us just hide and never try or do anything. You've heard of fear of missing out, FOMO. It can drive us to just run ourselves ragged trying to keep up with everybody and do everything all the time. Fear is just a really bad director for our lives. So we need to stop and ask ourselves, am I being directed and driven by fear or by faith? And this is a very real and practical matter. It's something I've been wrestling with quite a bit this week, especially the closer and closer I've gotten to this Sunday to preach this. I didn't realize how many aspects of my life are driven by fear rather than faith. In the subtle ways that it distorts my perception of things, in the subtle ways it steers me wrong. And there's some things I need to work through, and it might be that you too are driven by fear in some ways rather than faith. One of the most frequent commands in the Bible is fear not. God doesn't want his children to be afraid to see the world through fearful eyes and to make decisions and plans based on fear. He wants us to have faith in him and to trust in him and be at peace and to see the world through eyes of faith and to make plans and decisions based on faith in him. He doesn't want us panicking. Now, I'm not saying that there is no cause for concern and we should all just be smiling our way through our days because there are real causes for concern. This world has fallen and there's bad things that happen and we need to be wise. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. Planning is wise. You read Proverbs and you absolutely can see that making plans is wise. And making plans based on concerns that you have is not bad or unwise. It's when it becomes a fear-driven, panic, desperation mode to where you're not seeking the Lord and not remembering what's true, that things go off the rails. But Lot's firstborn daughter had a point. She did have a legitimate concern. You just have to be careful that our concern doesn't ferment and become poisonous fear and mislead us. We want to make sure that our concerns point us toward God and not away from him. Now, before we read basically the rest of the passage, the question that I would be wondering now, if this was the first time that I was walking through this passage and thinking about these things is, 
well, I understand all that, but what if I've already found myself in a life built around fear? What if I've already made a lot of decisions based on fear and made a lot of mistakes and messed up a lot of things because of my fears? Let's read on, and we're, I'm just going to read on almost through the whole rest of this passage. Just let the story unfold. So verse 32, we saw the plan, and now we'll pick up in verse 33. They carry out the plan. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. What a mess. What a mess. And I think about Lot. What a tragic figure Lot is. You know, he has not shown himself to be real admirable, but we know from the New Testament that he was righteous, and he was tormented by the evil that he saw around him in Sodom. Can you imagine the torment at learning what his daughters had done after the fact? Whenever they became pregnant, maybe it would have been the first time it came out, perhaps. How did you get pregnant? We've been alone in a cave all this time. What a, what a horrible, what a horror for him, the realization, if he ever did realize it. What a mess. They carried out this plan. It seems in a way to have worked. They did become pregnant. But there are consequences to what they did in the next two verses that aren't immediately apparent to us, but the original readers would have understood. Let's read the last two verses of our passage, verses 37 and 38. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, that might seem like sort of a boring subscript and Ammonites, Moabites, whoever they are, whatever. I have always had a tendency to gloss over whenever I start seeing names like Moabites and Ammonites. And my mind is so weak when it comes to history and being able to tie it all together. It's just like, okay, there's some people. But this is really significant. In fact, if you're wondering why is all this dirty laundry being aired out in Scripture in the first place, I think this is why. I think this was actually the point for the original audience. This is where the Moabites and Ammonites came from. Now, these did not turn out to be friendly cousins to Israel that they would see at family reunions and catch up with. These were thorns in the side of God's people for generations and generations and generations. You read on in Scripture in Deuteronomy, you see that the Moabites and Ammonites were not to be allowed in the assembly of the Lord's people. When you read into Judges, you see constant conflict between Israel and the, Moab, uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites. In fact, there's one story in particular that really stands out in Judges. King Eglon, who was uh, mistreating God's people, and then someone came and stabbed him, and he was so overweight, so fat, that his, you guys remember the story, that his fat actually enveloped and swallowed up the dagger that he got stabbed with? Yeah, maybe y'all don't remember this story. This is one that always stood out to me as a bizarre story. Well, he was a Moabite, just for a little context, but maybe that doesn't give you any context because you've never heard that story. Go read it. You get into 
the the big history books, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, you see that Solomon intermarried with women from these nations and it brought in all these idolatrous practices into God's people and, and re just sowed into God's people all kinds of evil and trouble. There was constant conflict continuing. Okay, here's one you might remember. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah. David, to cover his tracks, sent Uriah to the front lines of a battle where he knew he would be killed. Who, who was Israel fighting? Who was Uriah fighting when he got killed? The Ammonites. So here they come into play again. It says that bands of Moabites would invade every spring. Like they just had an annual, that's how you knew what time of year it was. Well, the Moabites are, you know, we see flowers starting to bloom. They saw the Moabites starting to invade again. Well, it must be springtime. It's our annual tradition. There's another story that always stood out to me, but if you don't know the Eglon story, you probably don't know this one either. But during this back and forth power struggle with these surrounding nations, including the Moabites and the Ammonites, there was a, a leader from one of these pagan nations that was conquering and they sent someone to him to try to basically make a kind of like a ceasefire and he said okay i'll go easy on you guys but only if you let me gouge out all your right eyeballs and send you back in disgrace that always stood out to me as just being so cruel and turns out that was an ammonite who did that so you can see how this this one weird desperate panicky decision leads to all these consequences one more, I forgot, I missed in my notes here. Ezra and Nehemiah, that part of the Bible, if you remember that, where Nehemiah goes back, he's trying to rebuild the walls, and there's this guy that is just a big pain in the butt to Nehemiah the whole time. His name is Tobiah, and he's just like constantly working against Nehemiah, making fun of him, uh, working, trying to sabotage his efforts. That's an Ammonite. All right, I just want to throw that one in there too, because that. I didn't realize, I just, I've glossed over Moabites and Ammonites like my whole life until I really started studying this passage and remembering where they came from. So the point that I want to make is that fearful, bad decisions lead to consequences. And in this case, it led to generations of consequences. Whole nations swept up in consequences, thousands of deaths type of consequences, frustration to God's people for, for years and years and years because of this. And for us, it may not be hopefully anywhere near that drastic when we make a fear-based plan and make bad fear-based decisions, but inevitably there will be consequences, whether those consequences are just broken or weakened relationships or uh, financial stress or whatever it might be. There are consequences. But that's not where I want to land there's more to the story where I want to land is much more hopeful because Christianity is good news. So the message isn't just do better, you fearful people. Stop making fearfully bad decisions. We do want to learn from them, but there's grace to be found here. There's another famous Moabite that you would know from Scripture. It was a Moabitess. It was a woman, and she was in a similar situation to these daughters, really, all the men in her life that would have provided protection for her and potential uh, family and children died in a famine. Her father-in-law died and her husband died. The husbands of, of um, uh, her husband's brothers died in this famine. So she was childless, and for her, there was really no man in sight. 
All she had was her mother-in-law, who was a Hebrew, one of God's people. And so she accompanied her mother-in-law back to God's people. She went with her, and she trusted in her God. She trusted in Israel's God, the one true God. Now, she could have panicked and come up with her own desperate scheme or ran back to her pagan Moabite people, but she moved instead toward God, and she developed faith instead of fear. And God indeed did redeem her through what was called a kinsman redeemer, a man named Boaz, an Israelite. And this woman, whose name is Ruth and who has a book of the Bible named after her, was grafted into God's people through faith. Now, you know where else Ruth shows up? You should read the book of Ruth, and that is inspiring in of itself. But you know where else she shows up? In Matthew chapter 1, she is actually one listed in Jesus' Jesus's genealogy. Jesus actually came through a family lineage that included a Moabite. And we know now where the Moabites came from. They came through this horrible, fear-based, panicky decision and plan made by Lot's eldest daughter. Out of that lineage, out of all those horrible consequences, God brought about the Redeemer, our Lord, our Savior. They could have, in Matthew chapter 1, listed Boaz in that part of the lineage, but instead they listed Ruth. Now, I think there's probably many reasons for that, but perhaps in part to remind us that God redeems even Moabite-type people, like Lot's firstborn daughter and like Ruth, and like you, and like me. Fearful people who make a mess of it, from a lineage of fearful people who have made messes of things. So there is hope for us. Uh, You may consider yourself a fearful person, an anxious person. Some people struggle with that more than others. If you don't struggle with fear, I know you struggle with something else equally, but many of us struggle with fear and anxiety. These are fearful, anxious times. Uh, Life is moving fast. There's a lot going on. Uh, You can get up every hour to look at your news app and see another headline. We struggle with fear. We don't always handle it right. Sometimes we choose fear instead of faith, and sometimes we make a mess of things, and maybe some of you are living in the consequences of some messes that you've made based on rash or fearful decisions. And I just want to point out to you that as real as that is, as wrong as it is to do that, and as real as the consequences are, you can still turn to God through Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. You don't have to get yourself all cleaned up first. You can turn to God right now through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. After all, he has a Moabite in his own lineage. And so I just want to close to try to bring it home and ask, a, ask you the question that I've been asking myself, what are you afraid of? Actually, think about it. Maybe even you want to jot it down to get specific. What are you afraid of? There's bound to be something. Even the toughest, toughest nails people in this room have some sort of fear, most likely. What are you afraid of, and how might that fear be distorting your vision of reality? What's actually true in that concern? Most likely, there is some truth that brings about a legitimate concern. Like, there's something real probably there. 
but it may not be as big and bad as your fear makes it seem. So what are you afraid of, and how might it be distorting your vision? What's true? What's exaggerated? It would be a good exercise to sometime today sit down and, and write this out. Like, I'm afraid of this. There's nothing that makes it more concrete than writing it down. So it's not just a vague category in your mind, but a specific. I'm afraid of fill in the blank. And I've not been thinking clearly. I've been thinking this, but this is actually what's true. As you get clear on what it might be that you're afraid of, let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to help us switch from a fear-based perspective to a faith-based perspective of whatever that concern is. And that will prompt us to pray about it rather than plot or fret. It'll prompt us to search Scripture to see, well, what's true here? It'll prompt us to get good advice, to act on our concern. And it'll protect us from panicking or making some desperate move that we'll regret later. And if you've already done that, made desperate moves and done things you regret, we'll go to God in prayer now and humble repentance about that. Because we know he loves us and he redeems people like that. He redeems people like the Moabites. He redeems people like us. So, Let's pray now and ask for him to help us apply these things to our lives. Would you bow with me? <coughs> Father, would you please be just kind and gentle with us and help us to see what it is that we've been afraid of. Help us to think clearly about it. Help us to see what's true and what's exaggerated. And help us to see it through the lens of faith rather than fear. Please protect us from giving in to fear, to panicking, to making bad decisions and plans. Help us instead to draw close to you and seek your wisdom about our concerns. And for those of us who are experiencing the consequences of bad decisions that we've made, Lord, would you please be gracious to us through Jesus Christ? Would you please forgive us? Give us the strength we need to to navigate the consequences that we've brought about for ourselves. Please guide us through them. And please draw us close to you through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.